Hello, and welcome to the Stockout. Stockout is your show at FreightWaves for all things related to the consumer packaged goods industry, the CPG industry, which makes up about one-fifth of all freight transportation spending. I'm your host, Mike Bowden. Just I'm the head of Intermodal Solutions here at FreightWaves. And this is a show we spent, uh, just set aside about 26 minutes uh, every week to talk about you know, what I think is relevant, um, what I would want to know if I was a logistics manager at a CPG company. And so what I have for you today is I'm going to talk about Walmart's results and specifically how I think those results relate to CPG companies, what CPG companies should take away from those results. Next, I'll go through the CPG sessions at last week's Freight Waves Global Supply Chain Week. I'll just give a little bit of an overview and uh, for more detail, direct you to tv.freightwaves.com. Those are all up on that site. And then finally, I'll go through the latest in the investigation um, of the derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, talk a little bit about what the regulations, what regulations might change as a result of that. There always seems to be a lot happening in the rail industry these days, um, including uh, yesterday, the news that um, Lance Fritz, the CEO of Union Pacific, will be stepping down um, you know, potentially in, to make way for Jim, Jim Venna, who seems to be the uh, hedge fund's uh, you know, preferred uh, CEO. So I can talk about those things. Um, and first, if anyone has not already signed up for the CPG newsletter, uh, would invite you to do that. All you have to do is go to www.freightwaves.com forward slash the stockout or just go to freightwaves.com. It's up there on the newsletters, the first one under supply chains right in the middle. As you can see on the on, on the screen, um, aim to send that out every Wednesday um, at about two o'clock Eastern time. And uh, really have sort of discretion to write about whatever whatever I feel like uh, you know writing about. Hopefully, it um, you know, touches uh, your business in uh, some some way. So, uh, with that, I'll get into uh, the top story uh, today, which is you know talk a little bit about Walmart's results last week. I'm not going to talk about this the way that a financial analyst would, but really um, from the perspective of a CPG company. So, CPG companies, um, you know, want to know everything that that Walmart's doing because Walmart. For a lot of CPG companies, for most of the big ones at least, represents about a 20% customer. Some of them, it's more than a 20% customer. And in most cases, uh, Walmart is the only customer that represents more than 10% of their sales, although that's going to change for some of them, assuming that uh, Kroger is able to buy Albertsons and it's not uh, blocked by the, the the Federal Trade Commission. So, um, But in any event, I think Walmart is going to be taking share in grocery in CPG because they do seem to be making a fair amount of headway with uh, consumers that um, are relatively high income, uh, consumers that, that, are, that are going into uh, Walmart versus a traditional grocer in order to take advantage of those better priced um, you know, grocery items. And then while they're there, they mentioned there's a, there's a high attach rate for other types of consumable items. So things like, you know, personal care products, paper towels, um, you know, uh, things of that nature. So they, they're doing well there. You can see from this, this uh, stock chart on, on, on Walmart that shows it's uh, outperformed the last, you know, few years. And that uh, talk that goes into what they um, you know, talked about as far as the, the consumer. And, uh, you know, Walmart's uh, statement on the consumer is really guided to a lot of, of caution. And so their, their sales outlook for their fiscal 24, which roughly almost corresponds to, to calendar 2023, off by a month as, as retailers you know, typically are, you know, their outlook is for overall sales between two and a half and three percent. 
that includes two to two and a half percent U.S. same store sales growth. What's typical in in far as their longer term outlook is four percent revenue growth. And the past um, five years, they've had six percent compounded annual, uh, you know, um, revenue growth. That's why the company's outperformed the S and P. I think we have a stock chart on, on on that that we can that we can show. This. But basically, it showed you know companies outperformed uh, the S and P, grown a little bit faster. They seem to be making headway, um, you know, with things like making the shopping convenience more uh, uh, seamless. You can go in, in a lot of cases, just scan the item on your phone. Don't have to wait in line or wait for a cashier or, or wait for a self checkout thing that never works. So they've been doing better uh, with, with, with that. But if I'm a you know, CPG company, look at some of those results and saying, okay, well, Walmart is sandpapering down what it typically um, you know, expects in terms of sales growth. Not a good uh, look for the consumer, particularly um, you know, given that there's a lot of natural hedges in place with Walmart that when uh, consumers uh, are in more of a tighter budget, seeing inflation and other things that they'll go to Walmart for, for, for value. So, um, you know, I think if it didn't have that advantage, it would be a steeper decline in the sales outlook. I'm expecting something of more of a significant sales cut when um, Target reports, Target reports earnings tomorrow, uh, the last few quarters, it's been kind of an exercise in um, seeing how much uh, better Walmart has been performing relative to, to Target. Another interesting thing that came out of this was, um, you know, Walmart on the consumer, they tend to look at, you know, a number of things, you know, on, on the consumer that's not just, you know, their sales that they see, you know, on a constant basis, but they they pointed to uptick in auto loan delinquencies as one of the concerning uh, metrics for consumers. And so some of the stats on this, I think, are kind of interesting. So in 1.84% of auto loans are now 60 days or more past due. That's 27% higher than a year ago, and this is particularly hitting the younger, you know, demographics. Um, the 90-day delinquencies for people between 18 and 29 at a five-year high. For millennials, it's the highest since 2019, and auto loan debt is now at the highest level it's been in over 20 years. Of course, part of that's because the auto prices have been very high, and the average monthly payment on auto is now over $700 a month. And here's another interesting stat: over. of Gen Z's and say their car payment has caused them to go more than 30 days late on another type of monthly debt. 33% of millennials said the same thing. So Walmart is looking at that statistic um, and saying, well, okay, this is going to cause, you know, lower, lower sales, um, maybe offset partially by uh, more trading down and and growth in their private label, uh, you know, brands. As far as uh, the CPG's, um, you know, interest on pricing versus Walmart's uh, interest in pricing, you know, my view on that is that this is going to be a more difficult year for CPG companies to raise prices on the retailers. Most of the big CPG companies have gone through multiple rounds of raising prices, you know, three, four, five rounds in, in some cases, whereas what's more typical is maybe, I don't know, one a year or so, there was a good quote in um, Reuters from Edgewell Personal Care CEO, and you know he, that's the owner of a Schick Razor, among other personal care brands, and they said it's going to be very hard for CPG companies to raise prices further from here. That may pertain a little bit more to the personal care side of things. As far as food, I think it's a positive for CPGs that Walmart acknowledges that there's still high inflation in food, where they say that the inflation there is still up, you know, kind of mid-teens. If you look at that food producer price index, that was up 
in January about nine percent uh, year over year. So um, really, I think you know Walmart's at least acknowledging that some of the food inflation is there. They do draw the distinction between dry food, which is a lot of that uh, consumer packaged goods, and the other types of, of food, which you know, would be things like meat and milk. And in, in those cases, there is some drop in um, you know, prices in, in the past year. But for CPG specifically, I mean, really, a lot of these, these prices um, you know, are a 20% increase in price on a two-year stack. So they talk about how even though uh, some of the, the year-over-year comps are going to look a little bit better. Maybe they're only up, up 5%. You do have to keep in mind they were up 15% or so the year before in, in 2022, in some cases close to 10% the year before that. So really a lot of inflation there, which seems to be helping a lot of these companies' private label uh, brands. Walmart talked about its private label brands uh, having a market share gain of about 160 uh, basis points, uh, which um, you know I think as... You know, if if there is more of a contentious relationship between the CPGs and the retailers this year, the retailers are going to promote those those private label brands even a little bit uh, heavier. Another takeaway from from Walmart is, uh, you know, Walmart expects its gross margin to increase this year. So, I mean, one of the ways they could do that would be, you know, of course, holding the line on the prices from its suppliers. But they also talked about uh, something that goes in there is lower supply chain costs, which, you know, might include lower uh, transportation costs. But in general, they don't seem to think that there are lingering supply chain issues, uh, whereas the CPG companies, to a large extent, have said, well, the supply chain issues are less than they were. Uh, but there are still sort of some lingering issues where, you know, trucks not getting the right uh, inputs um, at, the, at the right period of, of, of time. Uh, so, there are, you know, were times when, you know, Kraft Heinz in the past couple quarters said that at any point in time, they either don't have some ingredient that they need or they um, don't have some, you know, type of packaging material uh, that they need. But, uh, you know, Walmart seems to think those are those days are, are, are behind us. Uh, that makes me think that maybe Walmart is going to be more strict with its CPGs in terms of enforcing on time and in full uh, you know, type of um, type of rules. You know, could be greater. You know, penalties placed on CPGs for for, for that um, for, for that reason. And then I'll leave you with one one final takeaway, is is that uh, which relates to transportation is that Walmart, at least you know, for the most part, seems to think that its inventories are under control. It's just not too far from where it was a year ago, and, and really they got um, you know rid of a lot of that excess uh, you know inventory. I think they said it was within three percent of where it was this time last year. And you do have to keep in mind the um, you know, inflation uh, in that number. So it's really kind of lower on a, on, a, on a unit basis. And they say really sort of the lingering area where there's an oversupply of um, inventory would be on apparel. So people have apparently stopped buying clothes, which, um, which, which makes sense to me. Um, but um, nothing there suggests that, um, you know, kind of the bullish indicator for freight transportation that I think a lot of the carriers are looking for is at some point, the inventory levels will be dropped drawn down to a point where those inventories need to be restocked and that would create a lot of freight transportation demand. Not seeing it yet in our data at freight waves and not seeing evidence that that is upon us uh, from these retailer um, results. So uh, I'll move on uh, from Walmart and talk uh, through some takeaways from last week's uh, Global Supply Chain Week. Um, you know, I invite anyone to go to tv.freightwaves.com. Check out those clips. Uh, there's a lot of them uh, from the three-day 
a conference. I can go through a, a few of them here. One of them is from our friend uh, Ben Ritchie at Black Rifle Coffee, who I interviewed for this show a few weeks ago. Um, you know, he says uh, U.S. consumers getting very specific on what they're going to reach for on the shelf. So, um, you know, not that consumers are have stopped spending money. They they haven't. They're just being a little bit more. Uh, selective. Um, they are seeing some trading uh, down in the market in general, but doesn't think it's impacting Black Rifle too much. They seem to have a good a brand that um, is growing quickly. So that seems to be blunting a lot of that impact that um, you know might otherwise been, been seen from, from trading down. They also are looking at private or dedicated uh, fleets and uh, leveraging our data and other data in the marketplace to see when is a good time for uh, for that, um, and and so kind of the idea is to lock in uh, freight rates for dedicated capacity, which you know those rates tend to be a little bit you know stickier than the traditional sort of contract rates, which don't have a lot of uh, teeth. You know when contracts, you know, when the when the rates um, you know maybe are, are somewhat closer to to a bottom is when you want to establish that those contracts as a shipper, and that sentiment uh, relates closely to. The chart of the week article that um, my colleague Zach Strickland uh, wrote up over the weekend, which uh, says truckload capacity has 25% uh, too much capacity. So Zach, um, you know, is estimating that it's about 25% too too much capacity, based on a lot of the data that we have in uh, Sonar, and uh, you know, one data set, and specifically is the contract load accepted uh, volume uh, Sonar chart, which we're comparing the, the number of loads um, accepted, sort of accepted tenders today versus the accepted tenders when there was the most recent uh, spike up, which is um, it took place in uh, in, in September. Uh, so this is a this is a chart that you know sort of gets to the last point of when Black Rifle Coffee or any other CPG sh- shipper might want to enter into a dedicated contract. And ideally, you would, you you wouldn't do it when rates are peaking more when they're kind of troughing. And that chart specifically sort of suggests that uh, van contracts have further to, to fall, given that the spot rates, which the spot rates are in orange there um, with an algorithm that backs out uh, what the impact of, of fuel is. Let's let's call that about 66 cents. Contra- uh, spot rates are about 66 cents below a van contract rate. So that does suggest van contract rates have further to fall but the trajectory of those contract rates falling does not seem to be as steep as you might have expected. I think um, when you sort of look at that, that that data point, you know, you maybe would have expected uh, those those rates to come down further, but they are coming down slowly but surely. So I think if I'm a shipper, I might drag my feet just a little while longer in hopes that um, you know the, the the freight rates might loosen up just a little bit and and then try to enter into a a dedicated uh, contract. So those are the type of things that uh, shippers, you know, use our, our, our data for. Uh, another uh, session in Global Supply Chain Week that pertains uh, specifically to CPG was um, was from uh, Tom Madrecki, uh, was interviewed by uh, my colleague uh, John Gallagher. Um, and so Tom Madrecki is a VP of Supply Chain uh, for, for the Consumer Brands Association. So the CBA it's a trade group that works on behalf of branded companies, both inside and food, outside of food. And uh, they talk about how the there's really this need for progress to improve supply chains. He talks about the shortage of commercial you know, truck drivers. Nothing's been done to uh, make their life any easier. Like, I mean, even just, you know, increasing how much parking there is 
would dramatically improve, you know, the commercial truck driver experience and maybe make it a little bit easier to find uh, drivers. He also had a lot to say about the declining railroad performance, something that seems to be kind of almost a constant theme in terms of, uh, of, of rail service. Even, you know, today, the, the hedge fund that uh, wanted um, Union Pacific CEO Lance Fritz outside of the railroad service, uh, you know, issues. And, and we're going to be you know, talking about more about this um, on Thursday on the People Speaking Rail a show, but um, uh, you know Tom Andrecki at the Consumer Brands Association, you know, talks about you know poor rail service. He also talks about how there's no uh, body of government that coordinates the many moving parts of the nation's supply chain. That you have a, basically the, the issue is you have a lot of local governments and companies that are kind of working in their own interest, just looking at their one little silo, and don't consider the fact that let's say you know, really what drives a lot of the congestion in uh, the North American transportation network is, is a lot of these highway interchanges that really need to be, you know, de-bottlenecked. So um, the Consumer Brands Association is a, an advocate of uh, having a nas- nationwide uh, supply chain program uh, that would help CPG companies, um, you know, get their uh, components throughout the supply chain. Uh, another session from Global Supply Chain Week that pertains to uh, CPG and specifically food and beverage companies was the session that I did with Herman Hackstein. Herman is the founder and president of the Private Rail Car Food and Beverage Association. Uh, he founded that organization um, after his time as CEO of FHW Group. That's a company that was the largest lessor of refrigerated rail cars. So he really has some interesting um, you know, things to say, specifically on the uh, East Palestine uh, derailment. Um, you know, it, initially it seemed like there was some oddity with the, the wayside detectors where the detectors really should have caught the rail car, the rail car axle that was, that was heating up. And um, that's really, it appeared that that was the issue before this, uh, this, this latest um, report that came out. But anyway, getting back to, to Herman, uh, Hackstein and the president and the food and um, uh, food and beverage uh, association. They want better statistics for rail service, not speed and terminal dwell. He says those are not helpful. Wants something more like first mile and last mile data as it pertains to rail movements because that would really um, you know, help improve service uh, on the rail car side. He expects tightness in box cars uh, to continue. About fifty percent of box cars are nearing the end of their 50-year life. So um, those, a lot of those really are, uh, you know, ancient sort of, um, you know, after 50 years, doesn't matter what state rail car is in, it needs to be retired. And we're only going to replace about 30% of that retiring fleet. So some of the shippers out there that use railroads and use boxcars specifically may have to use intermodal containers um, as a substitute for, for boxcars. And then when you ask Herman, uh, sort of in which cases should a supply chain manager use railroad, you know, versus truck? And he says it really has a lot, a lot to do with, you know, how are you managing inventory levels? Are you going to have kind of a just-in-time inventory, in which case you probably just need to use the highway and only the highway. If you have forward inventory, you know, and, and going to look at the, the buffer stocks, then you can think about adding railroad into your supply chain. But that does add another layer of uh, complexity uh, there. And really, it's sort of critical that you select sites that have modal options and ideally, um, you know, different railroad, uh, you know, options because you can't count on railroads to quote you a fair uh, rate. You can't count on the um, action in DC for reciprocal switching, those types of, of things. 
But I'll move on uh, from, from Global Supply Chain Week to talk about the last topic here, which is the NTSB, the National um, Transportation Safety Board, last Thursday issued a preliminary report that focuses on overheated wheel bearing. This is an article you're seeing on the screen that Joanna Marsh uh, just wrote up on some of the reactions to that report. Um, so this was just a fact-based report for now. The full investigation is going to take anywhere from 12 to 24 months. And of course, that frustrates people. Why does it take so long? But they're really going to focus on a lot of different things. And so the, the sort of the list of things that investigation is going to focus on, the wheel set and bearing that overheated. So that's kind of the obvious thing. They're going to look at the tank car design and derailment damage. Now, it wasn't a tank car that caused uh, this derailment, but it is a critical issue as to um, you know the crash worthiness of tank cars, because this wouldn't have been an issue if the chemicals would have stayed in the, in the tank cars. You go back a few years, the tank cars had to be retrofitted with, you know, um, you know, head shields to prevent, you know, puncturing. So they're going to look at some of the, 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 the valves there. And there were some, you know, DOT 111 cars on that consist. Those can only be used for certain uh, materials, not for others. Some have to be used the, the the tank cars that have the, the what are called DOT 117 cars, which have additional safety features. So they're going to look at that. They're going to review of the accident response, which um, NTSB is is quick to point out was not their call to um, you know have the venting and, and burning of the vinyl chloride, um, and and that's really why it was such national news, as there were you know big pictures of black. Uh, smoke. I don't think it would have been such a red ball um, case if it wasn't for those uh, pictures that made the rounds on uh, social media. So they can look at that response of whether that really was the right thing to do. They're going to look at rail car design and maintenance procedures. Um, you know, really that car that uh, caused a derailment, which I think they call a car 23, which was actually a plastic pellet car. Was there something about that rail car that was not properly uh, maintained or was there a manufacturing defect, something that should have been caught? Um, they're going to look at all of those things. They are also going to look at Norfolk Southern's use of wayside defect detectors. And it's not clear yet whether any of those defectors, detectors did anything wrong. It kind of uh, seemed like there was nothing wrong with the detectors based on that preliminary um, you know, report. They're also going to look at Norfolk Southern's um, rail car in inspection policies. And then there was a, a press release, a press conference that accompanied the, the report. And I thought there were a couple of, of interesting things there. They said that the different railroads have different thresholds for their hotbox detectors as far as when they deem a rail uh, bearing is too hot and needs to come out of the railroad consist. So this rail car in question, the, 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 the plastic pellet car, car number 23, passed through three detectors. So it passed through um, a, a detector at 38 degrees above ambient, and this was, let's say, 30 miles from ground zero. It, it passed another one 103 degrees above ambient, you know, 20 miles away from, from ground zero. So it went from 38 to 103 in the course of just 10 miles, which my understanding is that is very unusual. And then within the final 20 miles, it went from 103 degrees above ambient to 253 degrees above ambient and uh, being on fire. At that case, uh, at that point, the um, crew is notified. You know, emergency brakes are applied. The crew applies their brakes as as well. And um, you know, I guess the the preliminary report is that the crew uh, members 
did nothing wrong, uh, which is, is, is good to hear. Um, also the, the track, um, you know, nothing wrong with the, the track, at least as far as we know uh, now. And so that um, those numbers I just rattled off, 38, 103 and 253 degrees above um, uh, ambient temperature, Norfolk Southern standards is between 170 and 200, you stop and inspect, and over 200 is considered critical. So it went from being this wheel bearing is not an issue according to Norfolk Southern standards to all of a sudden being a critical um, and, and needs to and needs to stop. And it did that uh, in the course of some some somewhere less than 20 miles, which getting back to the Herman Hackstein discussion, you know, he says that is very unusual. It'll be interesting to see, um, you know, as the um, that investigation takes place, what exactly caused um, that rail car to heat up to the extent uh, that it that it did. As far as you know, I can only speculate as to what types of regulations will arise um, because of this. You know, maybe those um, you know, detectors will become more frequent. Maybe there'll be higher standards on either um, you know, the, the wheel bearings or the, the maintenance schedules might be higher. There might even be uh, more standards on tank cars you know, for the crashworthiness, even though tank car wasn't responsible for that, uh, that, that derailment. So there's a lot to unpack there and um, be sure to, to write that up. And for anyone interested in rail, I encourage you to, to view our, our show, uh, People Speaking Rail, which is going to be on this Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern. We have a special guest, uh, Dan Elliott, who is the former chairman of the Surface Transportation Board, and he is now an attorney who works on behalf of shippers. Um, and I think uh, CPG companies that move by rail in particular are going to be the ones that, that would like to, to listen to that uh, show. So that's really what I wanted to go over today and hope everyone has a, has a good one.